Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. Right now with me, I have a man who is a jack of all trades. He was in the record business and the print business, writing for The Source, radio at Power 106 out of LA. Author, wrote the acclaimed book, the big payback, and it serves an honor in my personal collection because it's the only book I've read twice. And he works at the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU and is a thesis advisor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, the one, the only Mr. Dan Sharnas. Mr. Sharnas, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover. Well, that's like the best intro I've ever had ever anywhere. Man, that's incredible. I, Thank man, you for having I, me. I just try to do what Sway does, but do it about the same, but like I said, it's a pleasure and it's an honor to have you on. Your yeah. book and your work is Likewise. very high recommended. So let's go ahead and let's jump into it. Now, how did you fall into the music business? And was there a hip hop scene when you were going up to undergraduate at BU, Boston University? Right. Well, I think for me, it starts in high school in Maryland, where you know I grew up in Columbia, Maryland, which is a, like a, a, a an interesting little planned city that was very young at the time uh, in between two, it's like a suburb, but it's between two giant black metropolises. So I grew up, you know, as a Jewish kid in Maryland, listening to WHUR, Howard University Radio, Donnie Simpson on KYS, B103 in Baltimore. And that shaped some of my early, not just musical awakening, but also political awakening, because I I really began to understand the extent of, uh, <clears throat> you know, ambivalence in American culture with regard to to black culture. In that, you know, there was so, you know, all of American culture was essentially based on 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 black music, and yet um, the airwaves were really really segregated at the time. And so that led to me going to when I went to Boston. I ended up studying. Um, the major was called Afro-American studies at the time, but that's that was my course of study. And I ended up doing actually my senior thesis on this phenomenon of racial segregation in the music business. This was back in the in the 80s when hip hop was starting to really bubble up. It had always been sort of a subset of R&B and funk and soul that I had grown up listening to. You know, I'm, I was more raised on Stevie Wonder and Earth, Wind and Fire, you know, and Donny Hathaway then you know, hip hop came later. But um, then suddenly hip hop started to get really interesting and really creative and really political around the time I was in college. And that was the time of, you know, KRS-One and Chuck D and Rakim. And, you know, that was it. It's like, this is it. This is the most important thing in American culture. And, and I made a vow right there that I, I was going to do everything I could to help support it. Right. And it's funny that you mentioned the segregation within the music industry. I was just recently listening to the Broken Record podcast with Rick Rubin. He had Lenny Kravitz and they were talking about how hip hop was a countercultural movement that became mainstream. And at this time, before rap was getting played in regular rotation, there would be 
they parted, which means that you will only get play on maybe weekends or late Friday nights. So that way it wouldn't affect the ratings. Because if you look at Mr. Magic's Rap Attack and Red Alert, Chuck Chill Out on Kiss, and then the various regional hip hop shows, it showed that kids were willing to stay up all hours of the night and have their tape decks ready. And also stretching Bobito at Columbia University to see, hey, What's the latest records? Who's going to get played and who's going to break out before they became huge and signed their deals? That's right. That's right. And it all started in these sort of, like you said, these these late night weekend mix shows. Um, Hip hop was sort of like, the, 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 as Chino XL once said, it's like the crazy uncle in the attic. <laughs> you know, they just kept it up there. Um, and, you know, uh, I would say that Black radio stations were not that much more hospitable to hip hop than 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 pop stations in that respect. Yeah, um, I definitely ag agree with that because um, with Soul Train, Don Cornelius at first wasn't really a big fan of rap because it wasn't from his generation. There's an episode where he infamously was blunt oh, to Curtis Blow. It was saying oh only and planet because it's what I do. But a lot of the older people who were in management had to say it's not of our generation but it's what the kids want and it's what's bringing us those advertising dollars so we got to do it i saw kurt's soul leave his body in that interview man it was really really terrible terrible yeah i i agree and once again i think it was that generational disconnect where it's not our generation and it's new it's fresh it's young and we don't want to understand it because it's not something we, we know. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you get your undergraduate degree at Boston and then you start writing for the Source magazine. Now, did you have relationships with Dave Mays and Benzino while you were up at BU and then oh. got on at the Source? Well, there was no Benzino then. Benzino was, uh, you know, an artist in a, a music group that, Dave Mays managed. The source was founded by Dave Mays and John Schechter at Harvard, and they brought on two other partners, James Bernard and Ed Young, about a year later. Um, when I started writing for them, they were still at Harvard, but preparing to move, because they were both graduate, all of them were graduating, um, <clears throat> preparing to move to New York and relocate the offices to New York. But there was no there was no Benzino around at that time. He was just the guy who was a, a, a member of the RSO crew. Um, later history got rewritten, uh, you know, as, as if Benzino were a co-founder of the source. And I, I don't mean, listen, I don't know whether Benzino helped, you know, Dave made Mays out of a few tight financial spots in the very early days, but the source was a self-contained business uh, and, Definitely not. You know. right, not. So the answer to your question is, uh, yeah, my contact was with Dave and John and then secondarily with James and Ed in those first years. And my, my first cover stories for them were when they were still in Boston, but then, then they moved to New York. And it was great because I, I got to, well, I already knew Reef, Rob Tulo from college, but I got to meet Maddie C and, you know, Dream Hampton and Kieran Mayo. And, uh, you know, just Chris Wilder, incredible, you know, it's like one of those things where you can't believe all these people are in one place. And I, 
really me for me i was just lucky to be there right and this is also right around the time too where you also had regional music video shows go to anywhere usa everybody was doing their own music video shows and it led to regional sounds getting exposed nationally but let's talk about real quickly the impact of uncle ralph mcdaniel and video music box and now you can also catch my throwback interview with lionel c martin aka vid kid they were listen Ralph did something incredible in New York. He created this after-school TV show that provided really the first, you know, dependable outlet for videos, rap videos, uh, for this sort of burgeoning genre. MTV famously played about one rap video per year. Literally, like just one for the whole year. And so for the first three years, it was just run DMC videos. And then the Beastie Boys got one. And then Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince got one. And then, uh, you know, Ted Demi, who was an intern at MTV, uh, you know, had the idea, hey, let's make a show. But that's, that was in 1988. Well before that, Ralph McDaniels was really proving the concept on WNYC. I think it was Channel 31 um, here in New York City. And, um, you know, he, he pioneered that idea of not only just playing videos, but really talking to artists and taking their stories seriously. So he's not only a video show host, but he was one of our first important journalists, too. Mm, and it's still going to this day. And the funny thing about Video Music Box was um, with the documentary that aired on Showtime about a year ago about Wu-Tang, uh, they were talking about the Protect Your Neck video and how it still had that gritty rough cut look where you still had the time codes at the bottom and <laughs> they were telling Ralph like, no, we're not going to edit it. We're not going to polish it up. We're going to be rough, raw and gritty. And when Wu-Tang came out, it was a breath of fresh air because normally when everybody thinks about Staten Island, it's the forgotten borough. But when Wu came out, everybody was like, hey, we, we got to go on that ferry and see what Staten Island's about. Yep. Yep. That's a great, such a great story. Yeah. Great story with Wu-Tang and the way that they were able to go to Lau and Steve Rifkin and say, you're not going to have right of first refusal on us. We want to negotiate our own deals with separate labels as individuals. So to have nine MCs, every last one of them can spit. And they're all stars in their own right. And it's just amazing, the testament and the legacy of Wu-Tang. Well, that's really important. The story of the hip-hop business and the revolution of the hip-hop business is really the story of how a generation of folks, but especially young Black entrepreneurs, learned how to use leverage in a way that it, had, that, that it hadn't quite been used before in the entertainment business. The, 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 the long history of the music business is uh, one of, like we said, segregation, uh, but also uh, manipulation. It, it really wasn't, even though black musicians and artists created the cultural capital on which the music business is founded, they did not enjoy a piece of the pie for it. They did not have equity for it. And they certainly didn't have access, the kind of access to radio stations and venues that uh that white acts had well hip-hop came from the outside and the music industry wanted nothing to do with it so hip-hop was forced to create its own institutions its own radio its own video like we just talked about its own record labels and when it started selling big 
the difference between hip hop and say R&B or jazz that came before it is that the artists and entrepreneurs of hip hop already had businesses. And they're like, well, if you want to do business with us, we're going to call more of the shots. So Wu-Tang was a great leap forward when it came to that. But there were other incredible leaps too that, that, that artists and entrepreneurs took. Um, and that to me is just probably the, you know, other than the music itself, it's the greatest gift of, of, of hip hop. I agree. And when you take a look at all of the labels that flourished in the 90s and early 2000s, like with No Limit, Cash Money, Rough Riders, how they were able to say, hey, we're going to sell our material out the trunk, sell units. And if we make enough noise, you're going to come to us. Because look at what Master P did with No Limit with the 80-20 split with priority, saying, I'm going to keep 80% of the profits. You get 20. And he put up his own money for I'm about it. So 2 million VHS tapes and kept all of the money. And that was unheard yeah. of. I remember when I when I worked for Rick Rubin, I worked for Rick for about seven years. And at one point, uh, E-40 and his whole clique, uh, you know, the Sick With It Records and um, D-Shot and all those folks were just blowing up, selling hundreds of thousands of units just in the Bay Area alone. And that was one of the artists that I... I tried to convince Rick to sign and Rick actually liked it. He said, okay, we'll fly him down, right? Fly him down from the Bay area to LA and let's have lunch. And so I did, you know, uh, and I remember, <laughs> I remember that moment because Rick, Rick had sort of a spiel that he would give artists as to why it was important to sign with him other than the fact that he was Rick. Uh, and he would tell the story about being in the dorm room at NYU trying to sell those first Def Jam records and how hard it was to get paid and how much time it took away from the creative process. All he wanted to do was make records, but uh, having to fund them himself and chase down the money was a whole other thing that he didn't want to do. And he was grateful and it took him to a whole other level to sign with Columbia, with CBS. But E-40 is taking this in and for E-40, it's different. These guys like doing the business. These guys like chasing the money down. It was part of what they did. And E-40 also knew that he was making, I don't know, between 5 and $7 for every CD he, he sold, maybe more. Whereas if he signed with somebody like Rick of Warner Brothers deal, he'd be making maybe a dollar a CD. Forget about it. I'm not signing with, with you, right? Um, and so he politely declined uh, that offer and it took a few more years for somebody to make him an offer that he couldn't refuse which was Barry Weiss at, at Jive. J Barry basically approached it this way he says okay how much money do you make with each album that you release and I will pay you that amount not to release your own record and everything else on top will just be gravy. Oh, so man. that is the language that E-40 really spoke. Yeah, that's crazy. You mentioned Rick Rubin. How did you end up working at American Recordings with Mr. Rubin, which was at the time it was originally called Deaf American? That's right. Um, well, you know, obviously Rick is a hero. Well, it's a hero to all of us. And he had left famously, he'd left Def Jam just cold, like in 88, after he had, you know, signed Public Enemy took some of his metal bands and started a whole new label that wasn't a hip hop label called Deaf American in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, you'd see interviews now and then, but 
you know, nothing really. But I, at the time, my first job in the business was I started working with them in the mailroom of Profile Records, which is the home of Run DMC and Rob Bays and Special Ed and folks like that. Um, but I had maintained a very close relationship with uh, Bill Stephanie, who was the co-founder of Public Enemy and uh, also very, very close with Rick. And when Rick started to think about doing hip hop again, he asked Bill if Bill would come work with him. And Bill's like, you know, dude, I'm not working for you again. I've got my own company, um, but talk to this guy. And, you know, for whatever reason, Bill thought that I was smart enough and, and you know, able enough to be in a conversation with Rick Rubin and thank God he did. And I remember, you know, Rick coming to New York from LA and us hanging out that, that first weekend and us not liking any of the same shit when it came to hip hop. Like I like all the juice cruise stuff and the native tongue stuff. And Rick was not into that. He was into like Sir Mix-a-Lot and Milk D, basically all, all rappers who sounded like ad rock. Um, but for whatever reason, he took, he, 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 he was kind to me and he, and he was open to my own vision and he ended up hiring me. So after about a year working for him in New York, I moved to Los Angeles to work for Deaf American. Okay. And how did you end up over on Power 106, which was the home of Big Boys Neighborhood and uh, the right. Baker Boys? Well, um, that was more from my relationships with DJs. So when I worked for Rick, I not only did A&R, I also did promotion. So I literally, you know, I, I was the person who called Funkmaster Flex in New York or, you know, Red Alert, you know, or Sway and Tech in San Francisco. Um, but there was really nobody on commercial radio doing anything hip hop in LA when I first got there. K-Day had closed down. We had great college radio with folks like Mike Nardone, but very little else. Um, and then in 1992, Power 106 started, started toying with the idea of playing more hip hop. And the, the DJs that they hired to do, to do that, to do their first weekend rap show, Friday Night Flavors, were these two kids fresh out of high school who were already the music directors of a small station in Bakersfield, California, Nick and Eric Vidal, the Baker boys. Uh, and uh, I was already their friends. I mean, I'd like, you know, slept over at their house on times that I had driven up to Bakersfield. So when they came to Power 106 and started this show, it was like all hands on deck. So my pal, Adrian Miller, uh, who as of late, you know, uh, managed Anderson Pock. He did the news segment on the show. And then I was tapped to do a segment called Basement Tapes, which was playing the, the first or old demos of now famous rap acts. So it was Adrian and me on the show for about a year. Um, and eventually I sort of, I, I moved on to doing other things, but um, you know, that was like a, a formative experience for me and also really helpful with the book because I got to see how a pop station began to ingest hip hop and think about creating, recreating itself as a hip hop station. Right, so it kind of like it almost went through the same transformation that Hot 97 went through in New York before Steve Smith came in and made that transition from being dance oriented to more mm -hmm. urban hip hop oriented, correct? 
they were they were owned by the same company and power 106 did it first not many people know this but power 106 is, is changed at least a year before hot 97 did uh and they created the slogan where hip-hop lives that of course now is uh you know hot 97 or for, was for many years hot 97 slogan but it took Rick Cummings, the, the VP of programming for Emmis, a long time to convince the powers that be in New York to give hip hop a shot. Okay. There was a lot of racism in uh, ad, ad buying and advertisements right. um, in the ad world. And so it was very hard to think about imaging a station as hip hop for these guys, essentially. Um, that didn't push all the wrong buttons for them. Right. But they were all wrong. Right. Very wrong. And what was your take on what Teddy was doing with New Jack Swing, meshing hip-hop and R&B, and then later on seeing what Diddy was doing with hip-hop soul and launching Bad Boy and that whole intersection, or intersectionality, I should say, of hip-hop and mm. R&B, because prior to Teddy, you had Full Force that were kind of sort of doing that with their work with Lisa Lisa, UTFO, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But hip-hop and R&B mm. always stayed on separate sides of the room and didn't meet in the middle. Right, well, in some ways there was, as you rightly said before, a generational divide, especially among black folks. And listen, it wasn't even, it was also a class divide. I remember being at Boston University in my college years and all my friends were, you know, a lot of my friends were Sigmas, right? So um, in the black fraternity world, there was definitely, uh, you know, some people liked hip hop, especially if they were from the Northeast, but a lot of folks turned their nose down at hip hop. It was sort of viewed as kids music by the collegians and that house music and dance music and R&B were the more sort of sophisticated adult musics. Um, so there was that class divide, there was the generational divide. And I think where in hip hop it begins to pull away or rather <clears throat> resolve itself actually is when Andre Harrell leaves Rush Management to start his own record company and management company, Uptown. So Russell had this stripped down vision of hip hop as beat driven, uh, break driven. And Andre really had this idea of a, of a, again, this more adult, grown and sexy vision of um, a hip hop that involved not just um, beats, but also beauty uh, in the form of singing and, and, and songwriting. And so Heavy D, you know, was his first salvo, but it quickly led to his work with Teddy Riley and Guy. And Teddy Riley, of course, had been messing with this idea for a while, you know, creating the show for Dougie Fresh um, as this uh, almost orchestral symphonic kind of, of production for hip hop that we had never seen before. I remember, I remember being in DC, listening to uh, them play the show during the daytime, which was almost unheard of, like very few rap songs in the eighties got played in the daytime on black radio. And the DJ himself was overwhelmed with an older dude, right? And he's like, a brilliant rap song by Dougie Fresh. Like, 
at that moment, I really understood that he was having a revelation saying, oh, this stuff is brilliant. And it took the musicality of that song to make it brilliant for him, as opposed to Run DMC, which was the stripped down beat driven version. So Teddy Riley in that blend of R&B and hip hop, plus the added you know, swing emphasis, that machine swing, really created a whole new sound. And then that leads, of course, to what we'll call hip hop soul, which was the, the, the Diddy and Bad Boy imprint. Uh, again, the sort of more quote unquote sophisticated, grown and sexy use of beats and breaks combined with um, uh, beautiful R&B and soul songwriting. I think probably the highest elevation of that you can find in Mary J. Blige and Faith Evans, um, um, you know, but that was the, the wonderful sound of 90s R&B. Owes a lot to Teddy Riley's first work. I guess is a long way of answering yeah, that question. Yeah, because I can remember being, you know, seven, eight years old when a lot of those records came out, listening to that and just saying, man, if I was old enough to go to a club, rock cross colors, you know, and it, it was just great times. And then out West, you get Death Row, Dr. Dre, and sonically, sound-wise, West Coast hip-hop was totally different than New York-based hip-hop because BPMs were slightly slower and it was laid back and it was a slower pace because West Coast is more chill. Yep, exactly. And the impact of Dr. Dre, The Chronic, Tupac, everything that came out West pretty much signaled a change in hip-hop. And then also at this time, you have an emergence of the South you know, with Outkast and their release of Southern right. Playlistic Cadillac Music in 94. Now, for me, being from North Carolina, I was happy to see everything coming out of Atlanta and out of the South, you know, with Rap-A-Lot out of Houston and everything that was coming out of Memphis for 3-6 Mafia, A-Ball, MJG, and then, of course, UGK out of Port Arthur. Did you think that Southern hip-hop was a tough sell outside of the Southern region because a lot of people still had their stereotypes about Southern rap being slow and still on bass music? Shout out to Uncle Luke and Luke Records and then mm -hmm. Ted Campbell at mm -hmm. Super Slide. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. And the answer is yes, um, mostly because to folks in the Northeast, um, the stuff that was coming out of LA and the stuff that was coming out of the South seemed to be frozen in time. It was still very 808 driven, still very like drum machine driven, as opposed to the, the, the really intricate collage, jazzy sort of collage stuff that was coming out of New York. Um, but in short order, uh, the sophistication showed itself in LA hip hop with Dr. Dre stuff and with G-Funk, you know, LA really developing its own sound that was sort of melding hip hop with, with 80s style funk. Uh, and then in the South, almost indescribable kind of uh, new, you know, it wasn't hip hop and R&B. Um, it it was, it was just, it was as, as unique as Atlanta was. That was Atlanta, Atlanta hip hop, especially with, with Outkast and Gleam Up. What's really interesting to me is North Carolina, because North Carolina, in some respects, acts like a Southern state. And in some respects, it acts like the seventh borough of New York after Philadelphia being the sixth. Um, you know, my first knowledge of North Carolina rap was Supreme Nyborn. Um, and 
that was a total New York style thing. And frankly, North Carolina still has very close aesthetic ties with New York hip hop. So if you look at Lil Brother or anything coming out of that camp, that is a very um, sort of standard New York break driven kind of approach to things, almost native tongues-esque. However, folks like Fonte and, and Pooh are, are manifestly Southern, proudly Southern, uh, proudly understanding of, of all of these expressions, whether they come from North Carolina or Atlanta or Miami or New Orleans or Memphis uh, or Nashville. Um, so it's a lot, it's a whole universe. And frankly, by the 2000s, the South was ascendant. The South was gonna, gonna drive everything. Um, which is why a lot of trap still sounds a lot like 1980s hip hop because it trap still has that core 808 driven sound that it was just very appealing to the South. I think a lot of it was because of the car culture too. Mm -hmm. And being from North Carolina, I was a college radio DJ at WAG 103.1 FM. And that's where I first heard Little Brother with the listening in the menstrual show. And I can remember Ninth Wonder and Pooh coming in for a promo run. And I was like, man, so dope. And you could definitely tell that Little Brother followed the blueprint like you stated about native tongues, tribe, mm. de la, black sheep, everything that came out of that movement. And then also I'll be remiss if I didn't mention ski beats, you know, with original oh. flavor, can I get open? Wait a minute. On reasonable doubt and uh uptown Saturday North night. Carolina? Yep, ski beats is from Greensboro. What? Why yes, did sir. I think he was from Jersey? Maybe it's because he was affiliated with uh Darian Dash and all them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Ski Beats is is from North Carolina. He was in a rap group called Busy Boys. A good friend of mine yes. was a yes, dancer yes, yes, for yes, Busy yes. Boys when he was a kid. So it was cool to see for me, Ski Beats and Jodeci and everybody come from North Carolina saying, yes. man, North Carolina's really doing it. But we were also claiming the Tidewater area of Virginia like it was our own, you know, with Misty and Timbaland, Neptunes, everything right. that was coming out of the 757 in right. Virginia. So real quickly, right. tell us about Big Payback. How did the breaks come about? And then how you ended up being at NYU at Tisch School of the Arts? Sure. Well, you know, um, after my career in the music business, I decided to get back I decided that writing was the thing that brought me joy. Um, and I hadn't written in a long time. Like, I, you know, when I started working for Rick, I just stopped. Um, and maybe I shouldn't have, but I, for a number of different reasons, um, you know, I decided to stop writing. And then, then I realized that there were some stories to tell. Um, and one of those stories I was, I was considering telling was the story of the business side of hip hop. Jeff Chang had just put out his incredible history of the, the cultural history of hip hop. Um, and I felt like, okay, well, there is actually space to tell this other, this other story. So that's what I did for three, four years, um, just hundreds of interviews and um, many, many late hours in the library, uh, kind of a, a, lone, a lonely slog, but it came out uh, almost 10 years ago. We're coming up on the 10th anniversary of the big payback. And luckily it was received quite well um, and it was because it was received well that two things happened. First, Hollywood starts sniffing around for, you know, 
hey, we'd really like to talk to you about doing something with your book and uh, endured sort of a few years of these discussions before um, Maggie Molina and I decided to develop it for VH1 as sort of a, a fictionalized version of the hip hop business. And so that in 2015 would become the movie The Breaks, which was a season of television in 2016. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that the book did was it, 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 it got, er, garnered me some offers from academia. And so um, this place that I had heard about and I thought was just fantastic and always actually wanted to be close to the Clive Davis Institute at, at NYU taught, you know, sort of the history of the music business and production and business. And this was what I did. So um, in 2013, I started teaching full time uh, at, at the Clive Davis Institute. And I've, I'm in my eighth year there uh, with just amazing, amazing students every Dope. single year. Dope. And with the breaks, when it was one episode where I heard the breakdown in the Spread My Wings remix, I was like, yes, you, you get me there. Because that record, along with uh, If It Isn't Love by New Edition, favorite records of all time. But I'm going to give you a little backstory on Spread My Wings. I don't know if you know this or not, but I had a chance to interview Chucky Booker. And he told me uh -huh. that Turned Away was originally supposed to go to Troop. But what ended up happening was he played Turned Away for Sylvia Rome, who was head of Atlantic. And she told yep. him this is going on your album, no matter how much he tried to convince her that this was a troop record. She was like, nope, this is for you. And when he told Troop that Sylvia said, Turned Away is going for me, they were like, write a song similar. And that's how we get Spread My Wings and then the Clark Kent remix, which was very important because it applied that go-go swing to it. And I believe him and also Herbie Lovebug, who did production work for Salt and Pepper, Kid and Play, were the only ones outside of the DMV area to really incorporate that go-go sound. And then Clark mm. Kent sample, Sybils Don't Make Me Over in that breakdown section, which- Yeah, and also to have, to have that fade out to impeach was also, like that was when you knew R&B radio was finally just gonna give in to hip hop because they're playing Impeach the President on all these R&B songs. And the only difference was the rapping versus the singing. Right. So, you know, it. That, I, I've to this day, you know, Clark Kent just killed it. Dope sneakerhead, and also your take on the current state of the business with the middleman being cut out because of the internet, and artists are being more savvy, saying, "Hey, if I have my impression streams and follows, I can make noise on my own and not necessarily need to have a label anymore. Shop my demo around and be like EPMD and say, please listen to my demo." Well, you know. I, I tend to think that the more things change, the more they stay the same. I do like that it costs less for, for artists to express themselves and to get their music on a platform that people can find their music on. You don't necessarily need uh, a major label. You don't necessarily need a radio station or a video channel to co-sign you. Um, gatekeepers were much more important in the 90s and the 80s. However, uh, they're still gatekeepers. People still, artists still need uh, the curators of playlists to put them on playlists so that they get the right algorithm so that people will find them. It's all about getting attention. And so I think artists, while they are on these digital platforms, it's much harder in some ways to, to elevate 
from, hey, I'm on this, I'm on Spotify to, well, what does it mean that you're on Spotify if you're only getting a thousand plays? So you still have to have a good ground game, just like you did in the 80s and the 90s. You still got to get out there. You still got to post your flyers. You still got to do shows. You still got to get in front of people. Um, those are the things, the human connections that drive this music. Yeah, you could get lucky, right? A little Nas X, right? Uh, coming from out of nowhere to doing, you know, just incredible international hit. <clears throat> but uh, you don't rely on luck. You got to have a ground game. Right. It's like, yeah, in politics, you got to have a ground game. In hip hop, you got to have a ground game. Right. Almost back in the days, like when you used to have the old school street teams putting up posters on the light poles with the staples, riding around in a rap van, passing out advanced 12 inches or CDs or singles and everything like that. So, real quick. Cause singles remember those so real quickly before we plug current projects and i'll get you out of here talk about the impact of bdp and juice group oh god yeah well um you know in the big payback one of the one of the interesting stories is how the rivalry between these two groups really is actually just a a a, a runoff or a descendant of the rivalry between two radio programmers, Frankie Crocker at WBLS and Barry Mayo at KISS FM, these sort of crosstown black radio stations who are arch rivals. And then, you know, DJ Red Alert was at KISS and Marley Marley Marl and Mr. Magic were at, uh, at BLS. And so the rivalry between Crocker and Mayo became the rivalry between Mr. Magic, Marley Marl and between Red Alert. And of course, Mr. Magic sort of brought the moniker of the Juice Crew to that collective. And then Red Alert was affiliated with Zulu Nation and BDP and Native Tongues. So there was for a while, you know, like a real, uh, a real sense of mostly creative rivalry between those two, two camps. But again, anytime you have a rivalry, you have the, the chance of creating some amazing art. And what amazing, it advanced the genre just coming out of those battles, you know, it advanced the genre. Mm -hmm. And also we shouldn't be remiss if we didn't mention all of the indie labels that gave birth to hip hop, like Profile, mm -hmm. Sleeping Bag, Wild mm -hmm. Pitch, so on and so forth. And then New Jersey. Cold Chillin', Tommy Cold Boy. Chillin', Tommy Boy, shout out Dante Ross. And yep. um, New Jersey was Sugar Hill Records and how New Jersey is always been forgotten about or not looked at in the same light as a New York, because New Jersey has spillers, you know, from Red Man, Laws of the Underground, Naughty by Nature, Apache, Excel. Fatal XL, <laughs> producer Mark the 45 King. So big ups to the tri-state area and the contributions of hip hop now. Do you have any current projects that we should be on the lookout for? Yeah, I'm currently finishing a book on the life and legacy of Jay Dilla. Ooh. Oh, now real quickly, let's talk about Jay Dilla. A lot of people who are in hip hop know of Jay Dilla's, you know, contributions to the music industry, but a lot of mainstream people only know of him from his work with Janet Jackson on Gotta Till It's Gone with Samples, mm -hmm. Big Yellow Taxi, I believe the name is record by Joni Mitchell, and he did Drop for Far Side. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Um, well, well, you know, what would you, what would you like me to discourse on when it comes just, to Just about Jay Dilla and his impact in hip hop and why he is still so revered as a producer? Well, for me, 
really it goes beyond hip hop. I am taking Jay Dilla out of the context of hip hop and putting him in the context of the greatest, most important musicians of the last 100 years. Um, Jay Dilla, in when I teach at NYU, I, when I teach music history, I say, you know, America had sort of three kings of rhythm, three, three uh, artists who advanced what rhythm is uh, in American and global music. The first was uh, Louis Armstrong, who codified the sense of swing, uneven beats uh, into our music. Uh, next, James Brown, who in the 1960s turned every instrument into a drum. And then Jay Dilla, who essentially uh, created a third way of relating to musical time. It's not straight time, which is very European. Every, every beat is even. It's not swung, which is every beat is uneven, uh, you know, even on, you know, uneven beats. Uh, Dilla time, essentially, what he invented um, and pioneered as his aesthetic was the uh, putting straight time and swung time together in conflict with each other at the same time. And that is that, that sort of jerky, woozy, rhythmic feeling that you hear when you, when you hear a Jay Dilla beat, that is mus musically what's going on. It is the combination of straight and swung at the same time. And Jay Dilla essentially pioneered that. And it is important because not only did it change the way uh, that um, you know, hip hop did its thing and had influence on hip hop and R&B, but it changed the way musicians play, period, all over the world. Um, in jazz, especially, uh, he's viewed in the same light by young musicians as Coltrane or Miles or Ellington uh, as a real innovator. And so this book is about that life that he lived and about the legacy that he left behind. Right. We definitely look forward to that when it drops. And we got to also mention since Jay Dillard's from Detroit, Slum Village, Voice the Five yes. Nine, Eminem, Big Sean, great album, Detroit 2. And right now, my top albums of the year so far, it will be Jada Kids, Ignatius, T.I.'s Libra album, and then Busta Rhymes' new album, ELE 2, which to me, it kind of has that old school boom bap. 90s hip hop vibe, especially with the way that he flipped the sample for Poison on Out of My Mind. Yeah, yeah, great. I haven't even heard it yet. I'm still too busy writing it's this dope. book. It's dope, it's dope, it's dope. So definitely check it out whenever you get time. And do you have any shout outs you want to give before we conclude this interview and also plug your social? Just shout, shout out to you, man. Thank you for doing this interview. Um, and my Twitter is at dancharnas.com, D A N C H, oh, sorry, not .com. At Dan Charnas, D-A-N-C-H-A-R-N-A-S. Ladies and gentlemen, the jack of all trades, professor, author, music industry extraordinaire, radio host, and like I said, his book, Payback, if you really want to know the history of the hip-hop music business, I highly recommend you read it. You will not be disappointed. And like LeVar Burton said, you don't have to take my word for it. And you can catch this interview on all streaming platforms. Just search Beyond the Album Cover and the video version on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash J5. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and the only Mr. Dan Sharness on Beyond the Album Thank Cover. You. Thank you so very much for doing this interview. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. All right.